Well, I am excited about this new study of Prove It. And one of my biggest joys as a pastor is to go through a book of the Bible verse by verse. We did it with the uh, James, the book of James, a couple summers ago. And now we're going to do it with 1 John. And I guarantee you, if you're a new Christian, a Christian that's been walking for a little while, or even an older Christian that's been in the church all your life, you're going to get something out of this book. Because John is writing not only to those first century Christians, but to all of us here as well. In fact, as we look at John, we got to know who this author is. And and just a real quick summary, you remember that John was called by Jesus himself to be one of the disciples. Jesus went to Peter and Andrew, called them first, but the very same day, John actually was called along with his brother James. In fact, when you look at the disciples, there were three disciples in Jesus's inner circle, and it was Peter, James, and John. So John is a really important writer of the New Testament. In fact, Jesus called him beloved. If Jesus calls somebody beloved, this is a guy we should listen to. He was the only disciple at the crucifixion. All the rest of them scattered. John was there comforting Mary at the crucifixion. So this guy has a lot to say. He's written several books in the New Testament. We all know the Gospel of John. We've been living there with, uh, you know, the I am statements, the seven miracles that we've talked about. Uh, It just... He has written a lot in the Gospel of John. And then also, he has written the letters of John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And then, probably one of my favorite books, he wrote the book of Revelation as well. So if you look at his writing of the New Testament, he's second only to Paul in all of his writings because he wrote five books in the New Testament. And what I love about John as a writer, uh, Paul sometimes is way over my head. John is right down at my level, and he's really good at telling you why he's writing the book. Gospel of John, he says in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that you may have life in his name. John wrote the Gospel of John so that we can believe that Jesus is God, that he is the Son of God. Revelation, Revelation 1.3, John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of prophecy, and blessed are those, us, who hear it, take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. John is very intentional and purposeful with his writings. So when you look at the book of 1 John, what's his purpose? What's his intention for all of us? It's found in 1 John 5.13. John says, I write these things to you who believe. So think about that. He's writing it to Christians, not non-Christians, although non-Christians can get a lot out of it. He's writing it to Christians who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. That's why John's writing this, so that we as Christians can know that we know that we know that we are in Christ and can look forward to his coming that we sang about. Uh, Have you ever asked the question, 
how do I know if I'm a Christian? I'll be honest, as a pastor, and hopefully you don't lose respect for me, I've asked this this question to myself many times, not only when I was a non-Christian coming to the Lord, but especially after I got saved. This is a question that I'm always kind of asking myself. How do I know if I'm a Christian? I like the character of Thomas in the Bible. We call him Doubting Thomas. He gets a bad rap because he wanted, he was not sure that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus was really Jesus. And so he starts to doubt. He starts to question. Now, does Jesus scold Thomas? Does he correct him? Does he criticize when he has these doubts? No. Jesus shows him his nail-scarred hands. He allows Thomas to put his fingers in that nail-scarred hand. He allows him to see and feel the spear in the side where that, where that wound was. And that tells me that God can handle it if we have doubts. He can handle it if we ask this question and say, am I really a Christian? He wants to show you that you can have blessed assurance. And that's exactly what John is writing about in this. He wants to ensure us that are on this Christian walk that you can have blessed assurance. There is evidence, there is proof that God is in your life, and it's all throughout this book. So as we study this book over the next couple weeks leading up to Lent, I want you to know you can have blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That is the purpose that John is writing. Another thing I want us to do as we study this this book verse by verse is use it as a mirror. This is one of Sherry's mirrors. My mirrors are a little smaller, but this, this is pretty big. But use it as a mirror. When John starts to describe what a Christian is, the evidence, the proof, Look at yourself through that lens of scripture and say, do I exhibit these things in my life? Do I show these things? Am I walking in the light? Am I loving people and loving God? Am I being a light in this world? Am I choosing to live victoriously over sin? And if the mirror of God's word highlights an area of your life where maybe you're not doing so great, we need to be obedient and give that to God, and let him help us be an overcomer. Let the, God, the book of 1 John be a mirror that you look at your own Christian life, and if the Holy Spirit speaks to you, and we talked about this in Sunday school, be obedient. Do what he says as we look at 1 John. So that's kind of a prelude to what we're going to get into. Let's actually get into some scripture. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. John writes, and, and notice his, God, his letter of 1 John begins very similarly to the gospel of John. John writes this, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which 
was with the Father and has appeared to us. He's talking about Jesus here. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Man, that's what I want, our joy to be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, there's that mirror, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, amen to this, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is in the atoning, praise the Lord, atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Dear Heavenly Father, bless the reading of your word. Allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Give us that blessed assurance but let us also hold up the mirror of your word and let your Holy Spirit speak to us and identify in us areas in our life that we can surrender all to you. We love you, God, and we ask this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine if you could close your eyes and see Jesus speaking on the, on the, with the Sermon on the Mount. You know exactly what his voice sounds like. Is it high, low, medial, medium? You can see the gestures, his hand motions as he's teaching and preaching. Could you imagine what that would be like to just close your eyes and see Jesus say, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart. Think of this. Could you imagine what it would be like if you could close your eyes and you could remember Jesus touching the eyes of a blind man, a man that was born blind. I mean, there was no cure for what he was doing, but Jesus touches the blind man's eyes and suddenly he can see. Could you imagine what that would be like? Imagine closing your eyes and remembering an intimate dinner that you had with Jesus where he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. This is my covenant for you. He took wine and he gave it to you and said, this is my blood that will be shed for you. Imagine the conversation at that dinner table. Imagine what it must have been like to be there. And then imagine when your whole world falls apart and the three and a half years that you've followed this man suddenly come to an end as he dies a criminal's death on a cross. You're the only one of the 12 that are there, and all you are there is comforting his mother whose heart is broken because her baby boy that was born in a manger is dying and bleeding for the sins of the world. 
And then imagine this. On the third day, you and Peter run to the tomb because Mary's come and told you, hey, something's happening. He's not there. And you run to the tomb. You outrun Peter, but you run to the tomb. You get there first and you look in and the tomb is empty. He is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Imagine what that must have been like. The writer of 1 John doesn't have to imagine. He was there. He knew exactly what Jesus' voice sounded like, what his gestures were like, how powerfully he spoke, how he astounded the crowds. He knew the suffering that he bled and died as an atoning sacrifice. And he knew he was risen in the power of the resurrection. And this is what he writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, he was there. We have seen with our own eyes. He witnessed it. We have looked at and our hands have touched This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Think of that. When we read this book, and one of the things I would encourage you to do as we go through this, read the book of 1 John, maybe even every day. Just let it saturate your life because the guy who wrote it was there. He knew everything about Jesus. He's one of his closest friends. He's the guy who fell asleep in Gethsemane. He knows success. He knows failure. And he's writing this so that our joy can be complete, so we can have blessed assurance. There's three proofs that we see in the scripture that we read today that we can know, that we know, that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt. The first one is the proof of the Christian life is confirmed in the foundation of knowing Jesus. Now you might say, well, Pastor Ed, I don't know Jesus like John did. I can't close my eyes and see him on the cross at the Last Supper or even the empty tomb. I can't do that. You're right, we can't. But we can know him through the revelation of his word. And John writes five books and the whole Bible proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we can know Jesus. We can have that knowledge. We sing about it today. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe that in the resurrection and he's coming back again. We can know Jesus because what the Bible tells us about him. And every Christian should know Jesus. I love what the Church of the Nazarene says in our manual. It's our second article of faith. And all the articles of faith in the manual is based on scripture. But let me just read this to you because I think it clarifies exactly how we can know Jesus. We believe in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, our triune Godhead, that he was eternally one with the Father. He is God. He became incarnate, that means put flesh on, became a man, by the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. So that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and manhood, 100% God, 100% man are thus unified in one person, very God and very man, the God-man. That is Jesus Christ. That's who we believe. And that's why we can know him. Jesus is eternal. He was there in the very beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And he's fully God and fully man. We need to understand that is who Jesus is. Now, John in that early church 
was dealing with some false teachers. They were known as the Gnostics. And if you know what the Gnostics are, they, Gnosticism, they believe they have this special knowledge. Maybe I'm a Gnostic, so I have this special knowledge, but Larry doesn't, so maybe in my mind I'm spiritually better. That's what they believed. And they believed they had this special knowledge that everything spiritual was good and everything physical was bad. So they recognized Jesus as spirit, but they denied that he was fully man. And it's interesting to me, whenever you deal with a false teaching or a heresy, they always, 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 always attack Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why that is? I really think Satan, our enemy, he wants to attack Jesus because he knows if he can confuse people about Jesus, then he's got them. He's got them. And he can take away their assurance. He can take away their truth. And, and all the false teachings, including Gnosticism, attack the deity, God's, Jesus' godship, and his humanity. He was fully God, fully man. Now, I know the math doesn't make sense. 100% God, 100% man, but it does make sense theologically. We needed someone to take our place on the cross. That's why he was fully man. He knew what it was like to get tired. He knew what it was like to feel pain. He knew what it was like to lose a loved one, a friend. He was fully man, but he's also fully God. And he had to be fully God because only God could be perfect and take our place on that cross. And false teachings always, always attack the deity and the humanity of Christ. Let me give you a small example. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, written by John again, you're seeing my theme. In the beginning was the word, this is in the gospel of John, John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Have you ever looked at, maybe they visit you on Saturday morning, a Jehovah witness that comes by and they have their own translation of the Bible. They'll say it's the Bible, but it's their own translation. It's called the New World Translation. But if you've ever looked at John 1.1 in the New World Translation, this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. See that little difference? One word, one letter, one indefinite article changes the whole meaning of this verse, and it attacks the deity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a God. He is the God. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And we need to be able to be wise enough as Christians to stand up against false heresies. And John is doing that in this word. He wants to tell them he knows Jesus. He knew he was fully human and fully God. We believe in Jesus. If you're truly a Christian, you can have a blessed assurance that you can know him. Know who he is, see him at work in your life, and he can help you in your darkest situations. Second proof that we see in these scriptures. The proof of a Christian life is confirmed when we walk in the light of Jesus. Walking in the light of Jesus. That is a huge thing in this darkened world. I love these verses, 1 John 5, 7. This message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there's no darkness. If we claim that fellowship and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, we as Christians need to be walking in the light. If we are not, maybe that's the mirror of the Holy Spirit saying, we need to make some changes. You see, light represents good, pure, true, holy, reliable. Darkness represents sin and evil, which is rampant in this world. The statement, God is light, means God is perfectly holy and true, and he alone can guide us out of the darkness of sin. If we want to have a relationship with God, we need to put aside our old sinful and dark ways of living and walk in the light of Christ. Are we walking in the light? That's a question we should ask ourselves. And the other question I think is important is, are we shining that light of Christ in the darkness of our world? In our families who may not know Jesus, in our community that is very anti-Christian, are we shining the light? What am I, I, I've told you I'm an old 80s guy, so I like old 80s Christian music. Carmen, Lazarus, come forth. Jeff, I messed that up during our, our miracle series. Jeff is a big fan of Carmen, which I am too. And I should have played Lazarus Come Forth on that Sunday. That was a great one. Another 80s tune. But DC Talk is one of my all-time favorite groups. They're an 80s group. Uh, Toby Mac's still around, obviously. Uh, Michael's still singing with the Newsboys. These guys are great. But they have a song that I love. It's called In the Light. And this is the lyrics. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to shine like the stars in the heaven. Oh, Lord, be my light. Be my salvation because all I want is to be in the light. I think John is, is aligning exactly with the song. He's telling us that we should walk in light. If we claim to be a Christian and we're walking in darkness, the reality is we're not a Christian. But if we claim to be a Christian and are walking in light, the light of Jesus, we can have that blessed assurance. What does it look like to walk in the light in this darkened world? Well, I think... Like Pastor Jeremy said in his prayer, many of us were shocked and stunned with Monday Night Football last week, where DeMar Hamlin just inexplicably and, and suddenly collapsed on the field. There were ambulances there. They resuscitated him for many minutes. They took him off and they actually canceled the game. It was pretty remarkable what that injury had on the impact of the football game and even football itself. The very next day, and you, I don't know if you saw this because there was a little bit of uh, attention given, but probably not as much as there should have been. There was a, a, Monday, a morning show, a morning sports show on ESPN Live. It's the NFL Live Network by ESPN. One of the former, former quarterback, Dan Orlovsky, and I love this guy because he used to play for my beloved Detroit Lions, which, you know, they're not very good. He wasn't the greatest quarterback, but he played the game. He knows the seriousness of the game, and he decided to shine his light to all the world to see. I'm going to let our tech team play this little video clip, but watch what one person can do, just shining the light of Jesus and the impact that it has on people around them. 
You know, and I think even through the midst of absolute tragedy last night, I think you saw some of the beauty of football mm -hmm. as well, that it's brought us all here together. Um, you know, like, this is a little bit different. I heard, I've heard it all day, like, thoughts and prayers. And you just heard Scherf and Jonathan Allen say, like, all we can do is pray for him. And I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say, like, we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want it's just on my heart that I want to pray for It is. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. Um, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, uh, because we believe that you're God, and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're, we're sad. We're angry. Um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray. Truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace. If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 It's beautiful. Respectfully. We will continue to cover this story. Absolutely amazing. This wasn't the 700 Club. This wasn't TBN. This was Walt Disney owned ESPN Live. And Dan just felt like he needed to pray. And look at, the, look at his coworkers. They both said amen. Even, even the guy said respect. What if we, as children of light, said, not only, hey, I'll, I'll keep you in my prayers. What if we took the moment right then and there to say, let me pray for you right here, right now? There could be no situation more inconvenient to pray than live television. But that's what he did. Lord, give me that kind of boldness. When I see someone in Walmart and they're struggling, you see it, and they say that they're hurting and their, their, their heart is breaking, instead of saying, well, I'll keep you in my prayers I want to pray right then and there. See, that is showing the light of Christ. That is shining light in this darkness. And we as Christians are called to do that. Are you walking in the light? Are you sharing God's light with others? Third and final thing. The proof of a Christian life is confirmed through the forgiveness of some of our sin? No. Most of our sin? No. No of all sin. Uh, these verses are really powerful when you look at what John talks about with the problem of sin. You've got to realize, John realizes that sin is a problem. He's got sin in his church with the Gnostics who are spreading false teachings, but he knows that sin is a problem for all of us. John emphasizes our sin problem by mentioning this Greek word for sin or, unforgiveness or unrighteousness nine times in this short little passage that we read today. And the great thing is, is that when it comes to sin, John highlights some bad news. We know sin's bad news. He highlights some good news, but then he highlights the greatest news. Let's start with the bad news, because I'm a pessimist by nature. I, I always look at glass half empty all the time. So the bad news is, when you look at what, God, what John wrote, 
We have all sinned. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We all have sinned. And this aligns with the writings of Paul. Romans chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Another thing that Satan's really good at is making us deceive ourselves that our sin isn't so bad. You know, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery, although maybe I've hated someone. And in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, that's murder. And maybe I've lusted after someone. And in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that is adultery. But we try to kind of excuse or make rationalize our sin. Paul and John say, all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. We should not deny it, excuse it, condone it, or ignore it. That's the bad news, I know. Pretty depressing to start 2023. See, sin separates us from God. God wants to have a relationship with you, and if there's willful sin in your life, you are separated from God. Make no mistake. You have got to get that corrected in your life. I love this quote. It's one that I've used in many sermons because it is so true, and I've seen it so many times in people's lives. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. How many marriages have fallen apart because of adultery? That's sin. How many relationships have fallen apart because of lies and deception? That's sin. Sin always seems like fun for a season, but in the end, it always leads to death. That's why John is so concerned about the church making sure that sin is out of the church and they're walking in the light. That's the bad news. Let's get to some good news. Good news is John has an answer. We don't have to deny, since we shouldn't deny or excuse or condone or ignore sin, what should we do with it? John answers it in John chapter 1, verse 9. One of my favorite verses. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, praise the Lord for that, and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us, once again, from some, no, most, no, all unrighteousness. That's the promise. If we confess our sins, that's what God will do for us. That word confession in the Greek, is a great word. It's a compound word. It means same and speaking, uh, or speaking. So it's homologeo. It means to say something as another, to agree with. So think of it this way. The Holy Spirit shines his light in your life, or you hold up the mirror of God's word, and the Holy Spirit identifies sin in your life. What do you do? You basically say the same thing as the Holy Spirit. You agree with him. That's an area I need to confess to the Lord and give to you. I lay that down at the foot of the cross. And his blood will cover and forgive. Not just some, not just most, but all of our sin. It is to, confession is to agree with the Holy Spirit that I need forgiveness. And we do. We need forgiveness. And when the Holy Spirit shines that light, when we agree, when we confess, 
God forgives us of all sins and unrighteousness. That's good news because if we have sinned, we can get things right with God just by agreeing with the Holy Spirit, not denying it, not rationalizing it, but allowing him to work in our life. Final thing is the greatest news, the greatest news. And if you look at this, I love what John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Now, let me pause right there. There's some denominations who say, think, once you get saved, once you say a prayer, you can live any way you want. You can live your life whatever you want because your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're covered. You're good to go. I don't, the Church of Nazarene doesn't believe that. I don't think the Apostle John does. He says, I write this so that you will not live in sin. We need to hear that because I think we've let the enemy convince ourselves that it's impossible. We're just born with this. He doesn't say, I forgive some, most. He says, I forgive all. And what he means is, we can have a life victorious over sin. Does that mean it's impossible for us to sin? No. I've seen saved and sanctified people fall away. It happens. But we can live a life victorious over sin if we are listening to the Holy Spirit, obeying him, and living in the light of Christ. That is what John is saying, and it's boldly stated. I love what he writes in, first, in the Gospel of John. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. That's Jesus who came from the father. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. When you look at Jesus, he is gracious and he is truthful. And with his grace and truth, we can be forgiven of sin. I love what John, how John describes Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, we read it. It says, if anybody does sin. So once again, he writes so that you will not sin, but he admits that we're all susceptible to sin unless we're on guard and vigilant. And if any of us does sin, we have an advocate. I love that word, advocate. It's, it's the picture in Greek where you're standing before a court of law. You're dead guilty. You're caught. They have all the evidence. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. But Jesus, our advocate, our lawyer, our defense lawyer, comes up, puts his arm on our shoulder and says, this one is mine. This one is covered by my blood and I am the atoning sacrifice and my righteousness is credited to him or her. That's the advocate we have in Jesus Christ. That's his grace. That's his truth. Grace is, truth is, somebody's got to pay the price. Grace is, Jesus says, I'll pay the price for you as an advocate. Another John verse, John describes Satan as the accuser. Think of that contrast. You've got Jesus, the advocate, Satan, the accuser. The accuser, in Revelation 12, 10, it says, for the accuser, referring to Satan, are brothers and sisters who accuse them before our God 
day and night has been hurled down. I'm glad Satan's been hurled down, but he's still at work accusing Christians. That's why a lot of people doubt their faith because Satan keeps accusing. So you've got the, you've got the advocate Jesus helping you, strengthening you, trying to get you through and giving you victory over sin. And then you've got the accuser Satan saying, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You remember what you did? Remember this? Remember that? Remember what you did even this morning? This is you. This is you. And he accuses night and day. Have you ever gone to sleep and you can't shut your brain off because of all that self-talk, all those failures, all that guilt? That's the accuser working in you. You might say, well, what if it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Here's the difference. The conviction of the Holy Spirit produces change in your life. The condemnation from the accuser produces guilt, shame, and horribleness in your life. That's a big distinction. Jesus is our advocate. The Holy Spirit will convict us, and we gotta confess that, but we need to know that we can live a life victorious over sin. Satan is the accuser. Jesus Christ is our advocate. The greatest example of this was the woman caught in the act of adultery. You know that story. I won't go into it too much. But in they, the truth of this was that Deuteronomy and, and the Torah said that if you got caught in adultery or if you committed adultery, you're, you deserve to be stoned. And she had her accusers there ready to stone her. Jesus writes in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. Some people think he might have wrote the sins of all those holding stones. I kind of like that because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he writes something on the sand, and then he says this. He says, you who does not have sin, you cast the first stone. And can you imagine that woman hearing the thud of stones? Stones meant to kill her. Stones meant to destroy her. Fall to the ground. And those accusers move away. And Jesus, the advocate, stoops down, takes her hand, her tears filling her eyes because she knows she's guilty. She doesn't have any leg to stand on. She deserves death. And Jesus takes her hand and he says, where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I accuse you. That's grace. That's amazing grace. She deserved to die, but that unmerited favor of God was with her because Jesus is full of grace, but he's also full of truth. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then what does he say to her? The truth. Go and sin no more. Maybe today, you can relate to that woman. You've failed. You've been caught in your disobedience, your critical attitude, your negativity. That's one that I deal with a lot. And you are laying on the ground and Satan's there accusing you. He's got the stones ready to destroy you. And Jesus, the advocate, bends down and says, 
neither do I condemn you because I took your spot on that cross. I died so you didn't have to. Now you need to go and sit no more. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of John. John says the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all. I've looked up the Greek word. Do you know what the Greek word for all is? It means all, all sin. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what grace looks like. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it, but he freely bestows it. That is grace that is greater than all of our sins.